All right, here we go. Let's turn our attention and our time to the book of Exodus and to God's Word. Our scripture reading, the passage on which the teaching is based, is from Exodus 5 and Exodus 10. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. And afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Otherwise he will fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. Again, Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now many, and you would have them cease from their labors? So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, saying, you are no longer to give the people straw to make brick as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the quota of bricks which they were making previously, you shall impose on them. You are not to reduce any of it, because they are lazy. Therefore they cry out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let the labor be heavier on the men, and let them work at it, so that they will pay no attention to false words. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. <coughs> they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be detained. Even your little ones may go with you. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice them to the Lord our God. Therefore our livestock too shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, but we shall take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And until we arrive there, we ourselves do not know with what we shall serve the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Then Pharaoh said to them, Get away from me. Beware, do not see my face again, for in the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, you are right, I shall never see your face again. It's God's word to us this morning, so here we are, a sermon on the plagues. All right, give me a chance. If you're like me and you try to have a conversation with your neighbor about your faith, about your church, about the Bible, you almost inevitably are faced with skepticism when it comes to things like sin and salvation and those words. People are much more comfortable with spiritual terms today that translate into good feelings and finding out what feels good for you and for them. To talk about sin is regressive. To throw out sin is considered progressive. Consider this interview with Brittany Cooper. She's a professor of women's and gender studies at the University of Rutgers, Rutgers University. She's, quote, I feel more liberal about how I think about God now. I think religion is a cultural approach to getting in touch with the Spirit. And I really respect that lots of different people have lots of different ways of doing that. I question even the ways we're taught to pray, like list all the bad things that you did. As I become more integrated, I don't approach God with the thought that this is all about me being a horrible human being and having to acknowledge all of that. I now think about what it means to think about God as a friend and a confidant and as someone who agrees with us and cheers us on. 
Now, that's a commonly held perspective in our culture that we ought to get rid of sin in terms of our conversation about and with God. But Christian writer and theologian Barbara Brown Taylor, one of Time Magazine's most 12 influential people today, she said in her book, The Lost Language of Salvation, she says that not only is it functionally impossible to get rid of terms like sin and salvation, but that it would be detrimental to our spiritual, emotional, and psychological health to do so. She said this. She said, why should we speak of sin anymore? Well, abandoning the language of sin will not make sin go away. Fair point. Human beings will continue to experience alienation, deformation, damnation, and death, no matter what we call them. Abandoning the language will simply leave us speechless before them and increase our denial of their presence in our lives. Ironically, will also weaken the language of grace. Since the full impact of forgiveness cannot be felt apart from the full impact of what has been forgiven. Yeah, and when it comes to what sin is, what salvation is, what justice is, and who God is, there's no better place to come to understand what that kind of language means, what those terms look like than here in the book of Exodus. And there's no place, after all, you can go in the Bible to find definitions for terms like these, like sin or like salvation. If there's a definition there, there's a, it's a man-made one, all right? But actually, the Bible, thankfully, gives us something better than definitions alone. It gives us stories to fill in what words like sin, salvation, freedom, God look like and mean. And and this morning, we come to one of the most memorable stories in all the Bible. One that stands not only at the center of the book of Exodus, but also at the center of all the movies that have ever been made about it. Because of the special effects, of course. This is the story of the sending of the plagues. Now, when most people read this story, which actually covers quite a few chapters in the book, uh, there tends to be one of two reactions to the story. And first, there's the more conservative sort of church approach to the story, which is where we say, yes, oh, I love this stuff. This is where God gets the bad guys. You know, he, he blows the bad guys up. I live for this kind of thing. The other, though, is the more liberal approach, which goes something like this. This stuff is exactly why I got out of church in the first place. This is why I cut with Christianity. A God who sins judgment? Oh, it's so regressive, right? I could never accept a God like that. Now, I hope to show you this morning that both of those approaches are actually shallow and not helpful at all because neither of them are what the story and the account of the plagues are about. All right, so let's ask now, what do the plagues of Egypt show us? Why in the world is this story in the Bible? Well, three reasons. The plagues have come, first, to answer a question, (coughs) two, to show us a sign, and finally, to heal our hearts. Let's begin here. Number one, the plagues have come to answer a question. And of course, the whole story kicks off, if you're familiar with it, when Moses and Aaron go at God's instruction to Pharaoh, and this is what they say to him. They say, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. They may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? And of course, that's the question that now launches this whole episode, the whole story of the sending of the plagues. And then in chapter 9, God responds directly to Pharaoh's question this way. He said, then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. 
All right. So that's why the plagues come. They come to answer Pharaoh's question. But let's just be honest. It's a fair question, isn't it? Who is the Lord? There's actually no more modern text, no more modern passage we can look at because this is exactly the question our culture asks, isn't it? This is the question our every TV show asks, newspaper, magazine. Who is the Lord? Why should we serve him? Now, Pharaoh's asking this question, like many in our culture do, for two reasons. First, there's a head reason, and there's a heart reason. We'll look at them both briefly. First, Pharaoh had a head reason for asking the question, an intellectual objection to Moses and God. In his day, you see, religions and gods and goddesses were understood to be territorial. Uh, They were understood to be limited by geography, by boundaries. A god sort of couldn't come past his geographical assignment and designation. And so, in Egypt, You see, there were many gods, many goddesses to be worshipped. Someone could worship Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, if they wanted. Yahweh may be a god somewhere, but not in Egypt and not under Pharaoh's watch, you see. So for Moses to come and say, the Lord says, Yahweh says, would be like you. Going to England or Mexico or Nigeria or China and saying, the President of the United States says, you can't do that. If any of you have ever traveled internationally, you know how you would be received. What would that person say if you said to them in another nation, the president says you can't do that? They would say, who is the president? (laughs) Who's the president that I should obey him, right? And so you'll notice when God comes, when he responds, what does he specifically say? hmm? He says, I am going to do this. So that you will know that, I, that there is no one like me. There's no other God like me, not just in Egypt, not just in Goshen where the Israelites live, but there so that you'll know there is none like me. Where? In all the earth. In all the earth. See, God, for the first time, he's stepping out onto the stage of human history and making the claim that he, unlike every other God, is not limited to just being the God of the Hebrews in one space at one time. He's saying he's the one true God over all the earth. See, he's speaking to Pharaoh's head reason. But he's also speaking here to Pharaoh's heart reason. Because you see, when Pharaoh asks this question, who is the Lord, that I should obey him? He's asking it not as an atheist, but as a religious pluralist, as someone who believed in many gods. There were many right ways to worship. There's no wrong way to, to really to worship a god. He's someone who's asking it as someone who has a faith system in which he had many gods to worship when he wanted. You see how modern Pharaoh is here. Because to say in his day that everybody else's God is out and the one true God in would be an unbelievably and totally offensive. Now, it's a good thing times have changed, hasn't it? You get that, all right. But here's the thing. It wasn't just Moses who had an exclusive truth claim. It was actually Pharaoh as well. You say, well, how could that be? Pharaoh was much more inclusive than Moses, right? Pharaoh's got all kinds of gods, believe there were multiple truths. Pharaoh was the one who was being inclusive. Well, let's ask, was he really? Hmm? Was the inclusive person here making space for Moses' truth claim? No, of course, he didn't. And neither does modern-day relativism either. Because in many ways, modern-day moral relativism is the Trojan horse of our culture today. It looks nice and benign on the outside, but inside there is a real heartbeat there of lack of inclusivity towards those who disagree with him. And even the new atheists, if you're familiar with them today, all their books in Barnes & Noble, for all their talk about open-mindedness, they can be just as exclusive as the ones they denounce. 
Bill Maher, for example, in his movie Religulous, says this. Now, the first service, I said Bill Maher, you know, everybody here loves him. I was actually just kidding with that. I don't know, nobody laughed, so, you know, if you're a guest here, I'm not saying everybody here loves Bill Maher. Some may, some not. Just want to get that out, make it clear. Here we go. All right, now on to the quote. Bill Maher, who some may or may not like here, in his movie Religulous, says this. The plain fact is, religion must die for mankind to live. The hour is getting very late <coughs> to be able to indulge in having key decisions made by religious people, by irrationalists, by those who would steer the ship of state, not by a compass, but by the equivalent of reading the entrails of a chicken. You've got a sense of humor. The only appropriate attitude for man to have about the big questions is not the arrogant certitude that is the hallmark of religion, but doubt. All right, well, that's his quote. That's what he's saying. Now let me ask you, does that sound like a man who's full of doubt about what he believes? Or does he sound full of belief about what we all should believe? Hmm? Listen, if he really embraced deep doubt as a fundamental approach to life, he would deeply doubt what he says about doubt, leading him out of his doubt and into a place of faith. Now, with all due respect for him, because I believe he's being honest, <coughs> he actually is as adamant and full of belief and certainty that he is right as much as any other person of faith I've ever met. Bill Maher, can you see, he actually makes his living off of certainty, not of doubt. But here's the point, all right? Moses, Pharaoh, Bill Maher, you, me, we all come in with exclusive truth claims. And to not admit them, to pretend to be humble and maintain an appearance of inclusivity on the outside while really denying others with exclusive truth claims, that's the height of hypocrisy. Moses and Pharaoh were both making exclusive truth claims. And so, therefore, in the middle of this, God has come to set the record straight and to speak to Pharaoh's head in his heart by answering the question, who is he? Who is he? And the answer that God himself gives, he says, I am the one and true, unique God. There's no one like me in all the earth. He's saying I'm not limited by borders or by boundaries. A modern day way of saying it is this. I'm not limited by a building. I'm not limited by Sunday. I'm coming into every day of your life. Sunday through Saturday. What you believe, where you go, who you marry, what you think, how you talk, how you treat people, what you do with your money. You can't limit me by an hour and a half on a Sunday. Are you kidding me? I'm moving into your life. Who am I? God's saying, ha, who are you? Is more like it. Who are you is more like it. Now, before we move on, because that's what he's saying here, you may be saying, all right, all right, I get it. I see what's going on here. This whole thing, it's kind of like a cosmic peeing contest, so to speak. You know, there's God's insecure. He's got to threaten the bad guy, right? I've heard this before. Morgan, this sounds like that insecure bad guy in The Incredibles. You know that movie where he comes and says, he's bigger, he's badder. Ladies and gentlemen, he's too much for Pharaoh. You know, is that what's happening here no no that's not what's happening at all because the plagues have come not just to answer a question but really to show us a sign number two show us a sign and what sign is that it's this a sign of what true spiritual reality is what the fabric of reality looks like and what the human heart exists for. You say, man, that's kind of deep. Well, yeah, I would think that when God comes to explain himself, there might be a little substance to it. So let me show you what I mean here. It's actually unfortunate that we refer to these things as plagues, in my opinion, because while they are that, they're not less than that, 
The word plagues is actually not the word that God himself uses the most to describe them. Old Testament scholar T.D. Alexander points out that more than they are called plagues, God actually most often calls them signs. That's the word God uses to describe them. So let's ask, what are signs? Well, signs in the Bible are pointers or directional arrows. They're like road maps that, 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 that help you get from this point to the next point that point to something beyond themselves. And so when God calls these things signs here in Egypt, he's wanting us to see something beyond just the plagues themselves. But the question is, of course, what? What is God wanting us to see? Well, many scholars, including T.D. Alexander, have all noted the sequential nature of the plagues. In other words, the plagues appear all to be organically connected, to lead from one to the other, based upon and out of the initial event of the water in the Nile River being compromised and going bad. Now, because after this, look, what happens? Hmm? What's the next plague? The frogs, right? The frogs come up out of the river. They can't get any water to drink. And because there's no water to drink, what do the plagues do? Excuse me, what do the frogs do? They die, right? And then as the dead and rotting frog carcasses pile up in Egypt, what comes next? Well, the flies come. Why? To eat the dead and rotting frog carcasses. And after the plague of flies, what happens? The livestock get sick. And after the livestock gets sick, what happens? The people themselves get sick. Why? Because the flies have been feasting, right, on the dead carcasses and now infecting the people and the animals. All of these things have happened. And look, Pharaoh hasn't even batted an eye. Why? Well, because these plagues seem too natural, right? Too organic, too normal. They didn't appear to be miraculous enough. Pharaoh, like you, you've seen all these kind of things before. And even when the hailstorm comes and the locusts come, those are things that happen sort of naturally. Even though the Egyptian people's hearts are beginning to be softened, Pharaoh's isn't. It isn't until what we read this morning, (coughs) excuse me, the next to last plague, the darkness, that Pharaoh even begins to think, maybe God's involved here after all. You know, he sort of ignored. They come and go when Moses says, but hey, that's beside the point. Why? Because Pharaoh's thinking, what are you thinking? If these plagues are supposed to prove that God exists and he's powerful, they're not really doing a good enough job. They're just not, well, miraculous enough. Pharaoh didn't understand because he only saw them as displays of power, not pointers to a greater purpose. And I don't mean to jest here and joke about it, but listen, think about it. If God really was and is and all-powerful because he is, and he wanted to prove it in a moment, why didn't he just have Moses sort of extend his staff, you know, and zap people with forced lightning or something like that, or, you know, lift people up off the ground and kind of body slam them? Uh, why didn't he have him, Moses, you know, like wrinkle his nose and uh, translocate people across to, to the other side of the world or, you know, even grosser uh, and more spectacular? Why not have Moses just snap his fingers? And have Pharaoh's servants just sort of spontaneously combust and explode all over the palace. Hmm. Why did God do what he did? See, these things, they're not miraculous enough. Because as much as they are plagues, they're really a sign. But a sign of what? The answer is this. Unlike Jesus' miracles in the New Testament which point forward to a future time in history, a future place in history, a future glory. These signs were backwards pointers to an earlier time, an earlier moment in history before creation itself came together. You see, when God made the earth, how did he make it? What did he make it out of? He made plants and and animals and people and bodies and, and, and the sky to flourish and function. He made the Garden of Eden. 
into a perfect ecosystem where everything was interdependent and lovely and true and good and right. But now, can you see here in Exodus, there's an ecosystem not being made, but being unmade, falling apart, disintegrating. The jewel of the world at the time, the Nile, is that Nile Delta, was now disintegrating all the way back to what? What was the next to last sign? We read it. Darkness. And what did God make the world out of or from? Genesis 1-2 tells us. It says the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. What was the world like before creation? What? Chaos and darkness. And what has Egypt become now? Chaos and darkness. And therefore, what the plagues are pointing us to is this. Ultimate spiritual reality, which says that when you violate God's design, when you ignore Him and His Word and what He says you are and what the world is, you begin to unleash forces of chaos and destruction into the world and into your own life. In other words, the plagues are pointers to how we were made and who we were made for. Again, you may not like this, but let me just try to illustrate here for a moment. All right, let's say, uh, by way of example, that you, you, have eaten donuts for breakfast, french fries for lunch, and a big ribeye steak, God bless America, for dinner every day for the last 25 years, and then you go in for your annual checkup with your doctor. She takes a look at the extra 75 (coughs) pounds you've been carrying, She does your blood work. She runs some tests, and then she comes back and says, I've got some good news, and I've got some bad news. Which do you want first? You say, I'll take the bad news first. She says, the bad news? Well, your arteries are totally clogged, and you're probably going to have a heart attack and die in the next six months. You say, oh, that's the bad news. What about the good news? The good news, she says, you can escape the fate. If you change your life now, if you cut out the fats, you begin to exercise and lose the weight, you won't die at 50 years old. Right now, only a fool would walk out of that office and think, who does she think she is? She's just trying to control me. It's a lady on a power trip. Good thing I'm wise to her. Honey, pass the pork chops, you know. (laughs) No. Only a fool would say that. Well, what would a wise person say? A wise person would say, the doctor is trying to help me live in accordance with the way I've been designed. I've been living against the way I've been designed. And over and over, I've been releasing into my life over the last 25 years the forces of chaos and destruction through those demonic donuts (laughs) and those hellish hand-spun milkshakes. Curse you, Chick-fil-A, you know, (laughs) into my arteries again and again. But if I change how I live in accordance with what my body actually is, I will flourish. And I can go back to flexing in front of the mirror at the gym and taking and posting gym selfies, which is, of course, what we all want to see. All right. You guys ever been in there? Someone is like flexing, taking a picture of themselves in the mirror. It's just me. I don't... Next time I'll take a picture of the person taking a picture. All right. Listen, I'm kidding a little bit, but actually not a lot. See, the plagues are a sign. They're showing us what happens when we disobey God. 
who, if he really exists because he does, made everything and knows how it ought to run, what the fabric of reality ought to be. And if we live in existence with that, hey, life begins to flourish. But to deny that and live against that is like taking a thread on the scarf of your life, you'll pardon the metaphor, and begin to pull and watch it unravel. The plagues, therefore, show us the natural consequences of sin. Think about it. When you, when someone disobeys God, what happens? What does he do? Does, does God say, well, let's see. Hmm? What card have I got in my hand here? Hmm? What uh, you know, punishment can I play on that person? Let's see. I've got, to, you know, I've got like a, uh, an ace of fender benders. I could play that one. Maybe like uh, the king of the remote control batteries going out during the Super Bowl. That's a good one. Uh, maybe a jack of speeding tickets. I could play on that person. Oh, yeah, that's the one. That'll show them. No. Maybe those things happen. Maybe they don't. But what are, what are the results, the effects of breaking God's law, breaking his commands? The effects are utterly natural. Let me show you. Let me give you three kinds of of commands or divine directives that God has given us. And what happens when we ignore them? First of all, there's what we call a psychological directive or command. God says this, have no other gods before me, right? In other words, build your life around me, God says. Your desires, your, your heart's cry, build it around me. The corollary is this, to not do that, to not build your life around God, now begins to inevitably release destruction into your life. For many years, for example, case study here, though I didn't know it, I was, though I'd said I was serving Jesus, I was really building my life around trying to be somebody, trying to be a success. I would overwork and overwork in the name of Jesus. Then come home after another 70 or 80 hour work week, ignoring my wife in the name of Jesus, uh, on the edge of sickness and collapse in Jesus' name, resting all day Saturday in Jesus' name, effectively ignoring her all day again uh, in Jesus' name, and then recover just in time to do it all again the next week. My health began to disintegrate. My marriage began to disintegrate. Did God do that to me? No. I did it to myself. I had another God before him. I was building my life around something else. A psychological directive. Second, there's a relational directive. For example, God says, you must forgive those who hurt you. Now, of course, many people don't like this, uh, and they're offended by this command. But when God says, forgive, you must forgive, it's a bit like saying, uh, excuse me, the doctor saying to you, you must breathe. (laughs) What happens when you don't breathe? Why? Your brain begins to shut off, irreparable damage begins to come into your body, and the same is true when you choose not to forgive. Forgiveness is in accordance with your nature and allow your heart to grow hard and bitter. Though it's tempting and though it may seem justifiable, it's actually the worst thing that can happen to you. God is saying this is in accordance with reality. Forgiveness is where you'll flourish. See, the plagues, they're showing us on the outside what sin does to us on the inside. That's relational directive. There is social directives. Let me give you a few of these. God says this. First of all, you must not believe your race or your skin color or people who look like you are better than anyone else. If you do that and believe that, that's inviting, as we all have seen, forces of destruction and chaos and disintegration into the fabric of our nation, right? God says this, you must give your money away. Don't allow your heart to become hard and greedy and selfish. And if you don't do that, well, churches and ministries and charities won't have the finances and the resource they need to be agents of healing in the world. See, the world gets worse when you're not generous. God says this, third, hey, you must work as unto me, knowing I see it all. I'm your true master. I'm your true boss. 
but what if you don't believe this? Hmm? What if you just believe that guy in the cubicle, you feel like overlooks you as your boss? Listen, if, what if you cut corners and you work in a sloppy way? Maybe you don't show up for work. Well, on a personal level, you'll get fired, right? On a corporate level, though, you cut corners, you're selfish, you abuse people. Now your business begins to go out. Maybe you unleash forces of devastation into your workforce, like we've seen with Enron or the financial institutions whose mismanagement and greed caused millions of Americans to lose their life savings. See, selfishness, greed, they release forces of destruction into the world. Did God do those things? No, we did. We did. And therefore... Can you see in this sense that the law of God is the most beautiful thing he could ever give us? The Psalms, they call God's law beautiful. They say it restores us. It revives us. These artists, they sing songs about the beauty of God's law. Why? Because when we obey what the designer of our hearts has told us and taught us, it puts us back together. It reforms us. It heals us. Look, in a few chapters, think about it. After Israel is delivered, right? God brings them out of slavery. Where does he take them first? Mount Sinai. What does he give them first? His law. Why? He is putting his people back together. Who is the Lord that you should obey him? Oh, these plagues have come as signs to show you he is your maker you are finite, and that you are actually a little bit like a computer who can't properly run until you're plugged into the right and correct power source. So you come to love and obey your maker. The plagues didn't come into Egypt just merely to beat Pharaoh down through sheer force. If that were why they came, God could have done it way differently in just a moment. No, the plagues have come to show us what sin and obedience do to the world. All right, now you're saying, Morgan, I get the point. You're saying, I ought to obey God because I ought to, right? That's what you're saying. Well, in a sense, yes. But if you only obey God because you think you ought to, that won't be enough. Why? Because while everything I said is true, it would be merely a pragmatic reason for obeying God. In the same way that you looking at your spouse and saying, honey, the reason I continue to be faithful to you is because I said I would, and I'd feel really bad if I cheated on you. That's not loving your wife for her. That's loving you, right? It's thinking about you and your own life. And once upon a time, something may come along to give you a better reason not to serve God than just obeying Him. See, obedience through fear and compulsion will never be enough to restrain the heart. But the good news is, the good news is that that's not the main or final reason the plagues came. The plagues came ultimately for a far better reason. Number three, they actually came to heal our hearts. You ask, well, where is that? Well, the plagues came to heal in three ways quickly. First, the plagues actually came first to heal Pharaoh's heart. People always get hung up and offended by that passage of Scripture where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But that's only after we read chapter after chapter of Pharaoh choosing to harden his own heart. He had already cast his lot, made his choice of what direction he wanted his heart to go in and of how to respond to God. But here, can you see, through the plagues, here's God coming to a hard-hearted individual over and over again, pleading with him, please don't do this, Pharaoh. Let my people go. Let the power that you've taken into your own heart that's killing you, let that go. The plagues are God's pleading with him, though Pharaoh wouldn't see it. But they didn't just come to save and heal Pharaoh. They also came to save and heal 
the Egyptians' hearts. Because you'll notice, as the narrative goes on, the Egyptian people's hearts, they begin to soften towards God and toward God's people, the Hebrews. They begin to give the Hebrews gold and money. They respect Moses. They actually try to talk Pharaoh into letting the people go. And then look, look at God's heart toward the, the Egyptians. When the plague of hail comes, for example, God warns them. He says, get inside. Tell them to get their people and their animals inside and save themselves. Why? Why is he appearing to back off here as if he's sort of going soft on them all of a sudden? Well, it's because he was never hard on them in the first place. And of course, most obviously, the plagues have come to free and heal the Israelites' hearts. In chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, right in the middle of the section, they tell us this. God says, therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians." What's he telling them? He's saying, you want to know how you can see I love you? Oh, you'll know I love you when you see the freedom that comes through my judgment on sin. God's telling them, I am going to come and free you through my judgment. My judgment on sin actually shows that I love you and I love the world. My salvation, it's coming in through judgment. And by the way, church, you wouldn't want a God who's any other way than this. Because if you want a God of justice who frees the oppressed, you have to have a God who at the same time condemns the oppressor. We get all hung up on this today. We don't like it because of the apparent violent elements to it. But another people on the other side of the world in slavery to a superpower, are you kidding me? They would, their hearts would leap and love this. They would say, here's a God who comes and judges our captors, who judges iniquity, who judges evil. He's going to do everything he can to free us. Oh, see, that's liberating. If you want a God who frees from bondage, you have to have a God whose wrath acts against evil. You can't have one without the other. And like Barbara Brown Taylor said, if you take away the language of sin, you take away the impact of grace. The plagues were actually the most merciful thing God could have done. They were saving a million slaves. They were freeing and healing a people. And in a sense, the plagues have also come save you and free you and heal you today you say how is that like this centuries later this whole scene this whole story happened again when another salvation a greater salvation came through an even greater judgment centuries later another darkness came down again another sign of the unraveling of the world came down once more matthew 27 puts it like this It said, now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus called out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer to the question, God forsook his own son so that all the plagues of his wrath would fall on Jesus and not on us. All the forces of darkness and destruction and chaos were falling, not into Egypt, not into people, but into one human heart. Jesus, can you see, the maker of the world was being unmade on the cross so that now today when we repent, put our faith and trust him, our lives can be brought back together today. God has saved us through judgment on his own son. 
Because why? Why? What was happening? Oh, another kind of exodus. Our exodus. You say, well, that's a little too much. You're reading a little too much into it. Not at all. Before Jesus actually went to the cross and the mountain of transfiguration, at the one moment in his life, we see in Luke 9, where the full glory he had on the inside began to leak out. The gospel writer Luke says that Elijah and Moses appeared with him. Moses appeared with him. And what were they talking about? It says they were talking about Jesus' departure. But that's actually not what the Greek says. It literally says they were talking about Jesus' exodus about his exodus about the victory he would win by becoming the one who was judged for us all he would take into his heart the judgment we deserve that we could be freed and accepted and cherished and loved by god as his people and therefore as difficult as it is this passage actually shows us the heart of the gospel and the uniqueness of this god he's the god who saves through judgment but not judgment on people judgment on himself for what people have done and this is why now church you and me christians out of all people we ought to be the most humble people we ought to be the most humble people we could do nothing to make ourselves christians when we dialogue when we interact with people of other faiths and backgrounds we should be the most humble we don't have to persuade through coercion or force or judgment no because we could do nothing to free ourselves the same way the hebrews could do nothing to free themselves the gospel shows us the best and fuller picture of this passage. Let's ask now, who is the Lord? Oh, he is a God, and there is no other. Why should we obey him? Because not only is he our maker, he's our savior. He has taken our plagues upon him that we could be healed and free. We love him because he's not only a deliverer, he's our liberator, our liberator. And he can do that in your heart today, in your life, as we close in prayer and ask him, trust him to meet us in this place, in Jesus' name. Lord, we come to you now as we close in prayer. Lord, and we ask that you would come once more. Lord, and touch hearts. Lord, would you be the liberator of your people, the liberator of hearts. Lord, thank you for this picture, Lord, of showing us what happens on the outside. Lord, when we turn away from you on the inside, Though it's difficult, Lord, it's actually your mercy to us. We thank you for it. If you're here this morning and there's an area of obedience in your life you've been struggling with, as I say that word, something goes off in your heart, you know what it is. Would you raise your hand? I want to pray for you now. That as you look at the gospel and as you look at what Jesus has done for you, you would see there's nothing greater he could have given for you. Why wouldn't you want to serve a God like that? Why wouldn't you want, why you, why wouldn't you want to abandon everything and give it up now to love him? Always oh, loved you with an everlasting, all-consuming love, a love that's held nothing back. Church, don't hide your heart from him. Don't hold your heart back from him now. Well, I'm praying for these with their hands raised. Well, they would just let go. Let go and trust. Let go and trust. As we've sung this morning, we'll just say yes. Because for us to live is Christ. Lord, would your love now, your liberating love, come and touch our hearts. Give us grace to obey you because we love you. In Jesus' name.